0: Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities Podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities Podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Lada Moberg. She has a PhD in economics from George Mason University and is the author of The Political Economy of Special Economic Zones. Welcome to the show, Lada.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So, to begin, how did you get into the charter cities and special economic zone space?
1: I was studying economics and I wanted to study development economics and understand what kind of policies can actually help countries develop. And I got into this space very much through special economic zones, which was the topic of my PhD dissertation at George Mason University and also the topic of a book that I subsequently published on that topic. And I started looking into charter cities. Paul Romer was big on charter cities at the time and I was thinking maybe I write my dissertation on charter cities this is such an exciting and very promising policy but I soon discovered that to understand charter cities you really wanted to understand especially economic zones, because this was kind of this model that was out there that's been tried that wasn't really all the way there and then I thought I would just read that and then I can apply that to charter cities and then I realized there wasn't really much good scholarship on it, especially economic zones nobody's taken the topic from a broader perspective, try to kind of conceptualize it. So that's what I ended up setting out to do. And that was, I feel, was fruitful in many ways. Happy that I
0: ended up there. Great, and what's the name of the book? I'll refer to it also in the kind of introduction that I give, but remind our listeners of the name of the book.
1: Sure, it's The Political Economy of Special Economic Zones.
0: And if you stop by Chicago, I'm sure Lada would be happy to sign a copy for you. Yes,
1: (laughs) I'm standing here with a pen right now.
0: Okay, so you were interested in development economics and you kind of saw this. So what caught you? Because there's a lot of interesting ideas in development economics, right? Like RCTs are hot. We had Banerjee and Duflo and Kramer win the Nobel Prize last year. In addition, there's kind of this institutional economics aspect. So what was it particularly about like special economic zones and charter cities that did attract you, given that it has been somewhat under-researched compared to some of the other areas?
1: It was very much coming from a free market perspective thinking about how do you leverage market forces if it there are all these theories about the market not doing things right so government have to step in and fill the holes and when you start studying the kind of policies having to do with supplying education foreign aid and things like that where resources are concentrated or directed in the spaces where governments and bureaucrats are sitting in governments are trying to determine where the money should go it turns out that it often fails in various ways often there is some kind of knowledge problem that is you don't really know how resources should be well spent you don't really know what the effect is going to be on the incentives and the the workings of the local markets and so on and so forth so when you dig you start digging deeper and you're getting closer to just saying, "Well." how then, if it can't be government driven, it has to be market driven. But what kind of policies is that, where that can actually happen? And especially economic zones, I came across it as this way of creating a space that allows for market development, where that might otherwise not be possible might not be possible to do it in the country as a whole but you can do it in a concentrated space because that's really what special economic zones are right it's a card kind of area usually where the government designates having some different policies not often exemptions exemptions from taxes tariffs and sometimes regulations
0: cool and so you mentioned the knowledge problem the incentive problem can you elaborate a little bit on like what those are and particularly how those relate to special economic zones
1: sure so the knowledge problem is the problem that if you are a benevolent government assuming so making the clear case of you have resources as a government person you want to spend a wealth to maximize welfare this is what you study from day one when you do study economics right it's about maximizing welfare you can have all these equations You'd think that with all these equations, with all this math that we come up with, we wouldn't know how to save the world by now. We wouldn't have poverty. The problem is that those kind of models don't really get you there. If it were the case that you could have an optimal taxation and make everybody better off or distribute resource in a much smarter way and there was all these like, improvements everywhere that you can do, we would be better off. The problem is that those models don't get you there. Right? It's really hard from the top down to know how the market should function. So you see a market, it looks kind of simple, right? Like people buy stuff, people demand stuff, people supply stuff, that's how it's gonna work. And this was kind of the model of a socialist society, right? That the government can kind of portion out, can kind of predict what that model looks like, how society evolves, what the prices are, and so on. Now, we know that when you try that, it actually doesn't work and the allocation of resources get worse when you try to do it from the top down. So the knowledge problem is really that it's not about socialism per se, right? That's the extreme version. The knowledge problem is the further way you get from the information you need on the ground to understand how resources should be allocated, uh, the harder it is to allocate those resources in an efficient way.
0: Great, and let me sort of maybe summarize that argument. So one way to understand the knowledge problem is that prices transmit information. And prices Mm -hmm. are an emergent phenomenon from people trading with each other. And so that allows for this information to then get aggregated that allows for what might be called, quote unquote, rational economic decisions to be made in terms of allocating resources to the sectors that need the most. And so if you think, as you mentioned, an extreme example in a socialist country where they have X tons of steel and they can choose to allocate this steel to railway, to factories, to tractors, but how much steel to allocate to these different sectors. And in a market economy, they would be able to say the return for building rail is A, the return for building factories is B, the return for building tractors is C, and be able to allocate based on that. But in a socialist economy, because there are no market prices, you would not be able to effectively tell what the most effective allocation of resources is, and that would kind of prevent the resources from going to the highest valued use. Is that a fair summary?
1: Yes, absolutely. And that's, you know, the fundamental way of looking at it. And then more concretely for what we're talking about now, if we're talking about special economic zones and you have the government people trying to determine how a zone is going to work, often the more decentralized that decision is, the easier it is for those people in government to make that decision. So that's why like on a municipal level, it would probably be be much better to have a special economic zone governed on the municipal level than it would be on the state level, or even the federal level in the context of the U.S.
0: Cool. How uh, can you go into a little bit more depth in the incentive problem and what that looks like?
1: Yeah, sure. So now you can take the other extreme. And the reason why I'm talking about extremes, just because it makes it easier to define like the actual problems, because knowledge problem, incentive problems often going to be present at the same time. But when you think about the incentive problem, you can assume away first the knowledge problem. We just determined that it actually never works. It's really, really hot. You can't like aggregate that information. Have perfect information at the top. But even if you would have that, you'd still have the incentive problem in place. And the incentive problem is that as a government official, you don't have always the incentive to maximize the welfare. There's a reason why you have you are sitting in office. A project that you take on will often be very focused on that project and not see the whole picture. So the special economic zone is a great example of this. So in this case, what you often find is that if a person in government pursues a specific special economic zone, this is the precedent, he calls it, this is the precedent zone, his incentive is to make that zone look good. So he can attract, he can try to attract resources there. And you will not know necessarily, and it's often very hard to measure this, whether those resources come from the rest of the economy, whether the rest of the economy is actually worse off, and whether on net, in your economy, you're actually better off. What he's gonna say when you come and visit him, and you say, knock, knock on your door, President, show me your zone is a success. He's gonna say, obviously it's success. We have all these resources here. Often, if it's government-led, they will spend a lot of money on it. They will build all this infrastructure. If something is failing, they're gonna make sure that they spend more money on it, and so on. So that's part of the incentive problem, you know, when it comes to special economic zones, that you're pursuing a project, so many government projects generally, that has a certain goal in mind, but as someone who pursues the project, your interest is to see that that project lives up to, however you advertised it, uh, lives up to What you said it was going to do, so that you can then say, oh, therefore I should hire more people under me. I can build my bureaucracy and things like that.
0: Great. So let me, I guess, sort of summarize that again. So, Mm -hmm. one way to think about the incentive problem is under a market system, the investors, right, if they make poor decisions, they lose money, which it tends to be a relatively short feedback loop. If it's a government decision making body, then that feedback loop tends to be a little bit, let's say, extenuated. Where people might like shiny things, the voters might like shiny things instead of actual kind of monetarily beneficial things. And then, second, if depending on where the kind of support for the politician is, maybe the majority of the support is from their home village instead of from the country as at a whole. And so, therefore, they might make decisions to allocate resources to their home village, which might not be kind of economically beneficial, but it benefits their power base. And so that feedback loop is just different in a way from generating more economic activity versus kind of benefiting a political need, which oftentimes can be economically harmful.
1: Right. And you jumped here to like the private zone model. And if we're thinking about a government zone, though, the incentive problem does suggest that you want to be as close to those people. You want to have some kind of feedback, as you say, a democratic system or just a system where, where you somehow get punished for not treating your people well, pursuing bad projects that impoverish people. But the question becomes, right, how decentralized should you be? How close to these decision making? Well, if you take it to the extreme, if you take it to the next level, it is going to be, well, you want to actually be have it privatized, have a private company doing it. The benefit, of course, a of privatized company is that if things go wrong, that will not punish the taxpayers of that jurisdiction. Of course, when things, when a company disappears, jobs disappear, that's true. But in terms of the costs incurred in all the infrastructure and other investments, if you have the private zone model being one where the government may lease you the land, it might give some kind of little bit of discount on that, but otherwise it's like a private developed space you definitely want to maximize the benefit of everyone who uses that zone. So it works more there. It works more like a firm, like you think about it like a big conglomerate where you're trying to generate profits so that you can actually charge people for being investing in the zone.
0: Great. And so I think you touched on this a little bit with your discussion of the incentive problem. But how do you judge whether a special economic zone is successful or unsuccessful?
1: It's hard to judge in the sense that it's hard to measure. And this is where I started seeing how the literature was wrong or was going in the wrong direction. Often what people try to do is that they say, is GDP higher, exports higher in the zone than in the rest of the country? Usually if you give benefits, if you cut taxes somewhere or uh, cut tariffs, you get more development. The question is, Is it good for the country as a whole? And often people don't really measure that. And if you try and measure it for the country as a whole, then you're into the GDP growth increase. Well, over what period? Often zones are such a small part of the economy and you have to control for 2 million factors, right? So it never really works. How you do it is really exactly getting to the questions that you're asking here. Is there a knowledge problem? How severe does it seem to be? What is the institutional setup? Is there an incentive problem? do these policymakers tend to pursue these zones for their own political benefit? And you can basically, like, it's probably going to be very hard just by visiting this place. I did some field studies in Dominican Republic, and I visited several of the zones there. And they look great. I know that from there, I can't judge whether it's a good idea. I can see how they work. But you really need to talk to the people who set things up and understanding the structure of who actually gets paid to do this to understand it that's what, again where the private model comes, a simple one right like if you're in a free market and you look at a company you look at your corner restaurant and you're saying is this a good idea or not they're in business and people go there so if they have a profit then they're producing value right with so it gets trickier so you really have to understand it in a deeper level but it becomes like a more a political economy right and that's why i call my book the political economy especially economics and It's not just the economy it becomes ultimately political question of whether it's a good idea and to what extent they're doing good to what extent they're doing damage or to what extent they might be neutral look good but are neutral for the economy
0: cool And so let's, I guess, dive a little bit more into that. So if we think about zones, right, there's one way to evaluate them, which is kind of, is there more economic activity in that zone than otherwise? And you're suggesting that that's not a good measure because there could be more economic activity, but it's basically just subsidized. That economic activity would have taken place somewhere else in the country and has now moved to the zone. And it might even be negative because all this infrastructure was built in the zone. And what your argument is, is to think about what the institutional framework for the decision-making regarding the zone is. But I guess right even there, then evaluating a single zone might not necessarily be the proper strategy because you can imagine a national development plan where they say, okay, look, we have limited capacity. So because we have limited capacity, we want to focus on one zone. We're going to build out this infrastructure. But in doing this, we'll track some multinationals. We'll get like kind of these secondary linkages to get some of this, I don't know, like jump-started economic development. And if we look at what's happening in Ethiopia with their zone program, I think the government, I'm actually not sure, but I think the government is investing relatively heavily in that both in terms of manpower, as well as in terms of um, resources. And on a purely like cost benefit analysis, it's possible to conceive of those zones being like negative. But then if you think about these like secondary spillover effects, the, the entire framework might become positive. So I guess, does that I don't know analysis make sense, and how does that fit into your general framework?
1: Yeah, it, it is one of the trickier questions. It, like, what if you're talking about concentrating in resources such as infrastructure to attract investors from abroad? So that's a very specific case, and there are several specific cases like that. In general, you can talk about, for example, if we want more security in our country, isn't it better to start somewhere and concentrate the police here? That's an argument to hear about how to kind of create spaces of security and then they can kind of develop them further. You know, it is a hard question. You basically, the question you have to ask is if you wanted to concentrate the resources there and then you're gonna apply this trade framework there because remember especially economic zones what people usually talk about is tax and tariff exemptions. Why would you not, if you think that's a good idea, why would you not have that in the economy as a whole and allow for those investors to pick their location and be more flexible with where you're going to put your infrastructure why did you pick that spot if the government then comes out and says we need a zone somewhere that's always like the tricky question you have to ask and often it is because they want a project because they don't want if you allow them to invest anywhere it's really hard to tell a story afterwards like well we cut some taxes and tariffs and and look that guy over there established at this other port. So that's what you have to be skeptical of. There is a case to be made, absolutely, that even if you, in theory, could have done something broadly, something different, maybe you were politically constrained. Right? So special economics are often a way to create more openness if it's impossible to do that in the economy as a whole. If there's opposition from other policymakers or from the public and so on. So, if that's the context, then that could have been fine that they did that. If it's just a matter of very target industrial policy, often that creates more inefficiencies than the benefits.
0: I understand that. I guess one, to push back a little bit, let's say that, right, like agglomeration effects, people are talking about them a lot. They tend to be good. And so, there is a question as does the government have enough knowledge to kind of see these agglomeration effects? Or is this something where this general framework is better? I mean, we're seeing kind of the return of industrial policy. So how do you view right, like these agglomeration effects as fitting within your arguments and particularly within special economic zones. Can special economic zones be used to kind of jumpstart and create some of these agglomeration effects that could have these beneficial long-term outcomes? And if so, then are special economic zones the most effective mechanism to create these, or are these wider reforms a kind of better way to think about it?
1: Agglomeration effects you often get through private initiatives. See, so that's absolutely, special economic zones can do that, Often it's going to be more efficient by doing it through having a zone where you can have a a zone framework in your country and saying, if you establish a zone under these conditions, we're going to give you these benefits, tax tariff, maybe regulatory benefits, not determining the location, not determining what you have to produce. But if that would open up space for people to set up zones, host them, you can determine what kind of companies. And it's often that investors do that when you have like in industrial zones uh, you're saying we think that we want some kind of synergy effects between these kind of textile manufacturers and these kind of designers or whatever it can be one example when i was in dominican republic was a laundry producer where they made sure to invite the people who did the metal, like those things in the bras, things like that. So they were like, oh yeah, we really want them. We wanted them to be in the same space and they're creating these agglomeration effects. And yeah, it's like the economist's case. Yes, they work. You can often find more efficient ways than the government to do it. So you should always start there. Like, is there a reason why you wouldn't do this in a private initiative? That doesn't mean that it's possible for the government to create wealth. It's just that you're taking a risk, even if on net you have like a a positive expected outcome. It is a risky business and you're risking people's money because it's taxpayers have to pay for this. who weren't on the bargain. They didn't decide that they were going to play their money this way, so to speak. So that's why I would say for those various reasons, I would start in the private space. Does that make sense?
0: Sure, that does. And that's, you, you discussed this briefly in the answer to a previous question about, right, when to kind of do zone-based reforms and when to do national-level reforms. So I was wondering, I guess, if you could dig a little bit deeper into what is the advantage of doing kind of a special economic zone or a charter city-level reform versus a national-level reform, and how to think about those two different scenarios.
1: Yeah, that's funny, because I this was really the biggest pushback that I got when I started the idea, when I was launching the idea of writing about this to professors was you're not talking about any beneficial policy here because if it's a good idea to lower taxes or whatever they're going to do, they should do it everywhere. Why wouldn't they always do it everywhere? And it's a really good point. I think that this is when it comes down to the politics. It comes down to what's the context under which these zones are created. You had, for example, in the Dominican Republic, if we continue that example, you had in the 50s, the president there, Balaguer, He was basically pressed by the U.S. government, had been under U.S. military occupation for a while, and then they put him on there kind of as a president and they said, well, now we want you to do like, as we say, which is to open up your market. And he had way too many cronies, way too many people that he uh, relied on him for market protection a lot of domestic industries who would say, no way, no way you're going to cut tariffs and open up to Americans. We don't want you to do that. So what was he to do? He established a special economic zone program. In that case, I would think you have to do the counterfactual scenario and the counterfactual story here. I would think that had he not had that alternative, it's very possible that he would have had to liberalize the Dominican Republic. And that would have been a better place as a result. So in that case, I'd say it was a kind of a scapegoat. He could say, yeah, I'm really pursuing a very active opening up policy, export policy, and so on. In another case, if you do have a government that wants to open up and they're like, we want to have more prosperity here, we know that we're going to benefit from this, then there might, again, if they have some opposition, there's they know that the, the people will rebel because they think that they're exposing them to too much competition or... There is this other party that is trying, that is going to have all these arguments for the next election that they completely sold their people and so on. So they know that, oh, we can't just open up the economy, especially economic zones, usually looks kind of harmless. And it is harmless in the way that it's a confined space. It doesn't cost you anything. You can set up this zone and allow for this growth of, say, an export industry that you were hoping to promote. In that case especially economic zones if that's the way you have to go then that can be much better than nothing and it can create reform further on because then as a policy maker you can then look and point to it and say hey people get jobs here and they're treated well we're getting this export revenue we could actually grow the economy and become a attrition make that case and you can see that it actually works in our country too to do this so Possibly you can open more zones. More Maybe eventually you can then have lower tariffs, taxes, whatever you're pursuing in the country
0: as a whole. Great. And what policies, I guess, do you think are most important for special economic zones to adopt? Like, what do you say, that, not just policies, but also like everything else? What would you say are the key determinants for the success of a special economic zone?
1: Well, the traditional model is just tariff taxes. I don't think that that actually takes you very far. What that is, it's a cost cutting. Strategy often what you attract is companies that need to find cheap labor, cheap capital, and things like that. Where they really work well, where you really see the benefit, and you don't get this kind of as much of this um, extracting resources from the rest of the economy, it's really when you get down to regulatory reforms. When we talk about regulations, you're talking about opening up opportunities, things that maybe didn't exist before that you couldn't pursue this kind of industry in this country because the regulatory hurdles were too high. Those are not as common. It's still the case. And I know that you work a lot with the zones of the future where you're really looking at this, but it's still the case that most of the special economic zones in the world are industrial zones. People don't live there. People go in and work rolling cigars or making t-shirts and they go out at night. So the most common one is that still that model, not much of a regulatory form. I do believe we think about kind of more important in terms of actually making a difference and be more dynamic and open up opportunities and have the opportunity to make political impact and then spread in the, whole, in the economy as a whole. I would definitely go for the regulatory side of the policies.
0: Cool, I think, yeah, we definitely focus on the regulatory aspect. I think the other aspects, and I'd like to get your opinion on whether you agree on the importance of these is one, we think about devolving a lot of authority to the zone. So obviously taxes, regulatory, right? Getting as much zone level authority as possible. Second, we tend to want think about zone selection being privately led so that the private sector identify where the zone might be instead of government because the government, as you mentioned, with the knowledge and incentive problems often might not identify the right location. Third, we tend to think that it's beneficial to have very large zones. So you only get those kind of agglomeration effects. You only get those secondary spillover effects if the zone is particularly large. If the zone is small, and even if the regulations are excellent, you might not get those benefits. Another important thing is not just to have the, right, like this change in rules, but actually have the, like, legal authority delegated. So let's assume the zone has authority over labor law, right? Like, they might get labor law wrong in the first year and so to be able to change it at the zone level without going to the central government and asking the central government for permission can allow for this i don't know more responsive to the needs of the zone residents businesses etc to help improve the economic activity there
1: what you're pointing at is this is a great way to illustrate the difference between charter cities and special economic zones you're talking about governance here you're talking about the structure of something what, how something should work i'm talking about Two dimensions only, basically. I mean, two kind of levels here. There's a regular level, and then there's this simple, like, you pay a bit less. Here's a discount, and you can be in this space. That's the kind of traditional special economic zone model. And then we have these pockets of special economic zones that have gone towards, say they're already in the private space. That's cool. Uh, but they've gone towards allowing for more regulatory exemptions. And that's when you're taking this mini-stack. Towards becoming what would be we would think more as a charter city, which ultimately becomes a mechanism for I mean what you're talking about is a mechanism for decentralization. There's in special economic zones, you generally don't think of people don't think of themselves living in a different jurisdiction in any way. They're not, right? They're, they're living in their regular place. So that's a great example. And it might be interesting just then think about like, well, what's the kind of middle ground here? I mean, China might be an example of where you actually did create really big zones. Those zones became, like Shenzhen, became huge cities. So now, what is this now? Well, they don't have the fence anymore. They recently like took down the last pieces of fences, <laughs> fences that were somewhere. So is it now a charter city or a special economic zone? I would say it's still kind of a special economic zone because they don't it like autonomy, not to the extent that we would want in the charter city, right? But so it's just to make the point that, like, I would say most special economic zones are very flat in comparison to what you're describing. And then there are some that are kind of moving a little bit in that direction.
0: Uh cool. And so let's, I guess, stay on China and Shenzhen. Why were the Chinese special economic zones so successful?
1: I think that they're successful, a little bit different than most people would say, because most people would say, well, they were successful because they exported a lot or something like that. We don't, again yeah, we don't know if that was... On net, good for the economy if you just look at that, kind of an as isolated case. I think that especially economic sense were crucial to drive the reforms in China. So here is the case where not only were they a way to open up when there was a political resistance, but it was also a way to take this next step to therefore become a showcase and an engine really for further reforms. And what happened was basically there were some business people who wanted to do business with Hong Kong and said, hey, can we create a zone by the border of Hong Kong to trade with them? So we have to pay so many tariffs when we are shipping goods back and forth. So they were, after lobbying, I'm sure they were bribing the right people and talking to the right people, right? They actually got this through. How can that happen? Well, it starts in the local level where it's just enough to get the people who you need approval from to agree to start this zone. And it doesn't mean that they are that they agree that the maximum welfare function is solvable and therefore you're gonna make the people better off or something like that. It's just, you can, again, just give them a brown envelope and then you have your zone. The profits that you make from that has to be more obviously than what you were giving in the brown envelope and the losses they would expect from having that zone must be smaller than they were getting too. So why would they have the any losses? Well, if you are opening up your economy and it's under their restriction, then they have this very protected economy going on and that might you know, jeopardize what they're doing. Something that is based more on kind of cronism. So once they got that zone started, I mean, it took a while. They, the four original zones kind of were the ones that lingered there for a couple of decades. The real boom came in early 90s. But what the mechanism was is very much that because China was actually a pretty decentralized system, we don't think of it as that because we think about that as communists, but they were very like both fiscally and politically decentralized in the sense that they were fiscally decentralized in the sense that local policymakers had incentive to make the economy grow. Chinese from the top said, we wanted to create GDP, do it and you get promoted. So they had an incentive to see that happen. And they were politically decentralized in the way that they could actually take these decisions. They needed approval from top, but then trying to figure out how the zones would work and stuff like that. A lot of that could happen actually on pre-local level. So there was an ability and incentive to do this. And when you had more of these zones, China started becoming more of like a little bit more of an open economy. So you had more and more people saying, well, I'm actually benefit local policymakers saying I might actually benefit more from starting to uh, pursue openness. I want to stone for myself. That would be better for me than to keep kind of my closed-in system here when I live off kickbacks from various people. So that's how it kind of grew. And it took a while for the government to be on board. Deng Xiaoping wasn't like on board uh, beginning. He came on board when most other people started seeing that, oh, we can actually benefit from this. So in that way, I think that they were a tool to pursue reforms that may not have Happen otherwise, and if they would have happened, would have happened slower.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, when Deng Xiaoping came, came to power after Mao, there was more of an impetus for opening up. But Shanghai, which is the traditional commercial capital of China, was not really an option because, right, the, all the capitalists were there who were evil. They ran to Hong Kong, sort of in the immediate kind of post civil war era, and that was an alternative power base to Beijing. So Shenzhen was small, it was non-threatening. And there was some of these kind of familial linkages with Hong Kong that allowed for rapid investment. And there was, I think your point about the decentralization of power is quite important because yeah, I think most people don't realize that China is relatively decentralized and it's quite interesting reading some of the articles about Shenzhen. They had a lot of local autonomy, right? People think about special economic zones and it's like taxes. But in Shenzhen, they basically could do almost whatever they wanted. They reformed labor law, they reformed FDI, they reformed land, they reformed state owned enterprises. So they did have this very wide range of autonomy and they were kind of figuring it out. It wasn't Planned, so like the Dubai International Financial Center, for example, was very planned. It was we want to be a financial center. We are going to take common law. We are basically going to cut and paste it from the UK a little bit from Australia, and then right implement it. Where Shenzhen, they kind of had no idea what they were doing. The Deng Xiaoping quote is like right crossing the stream while feeling for the rocks with your feet or something, because there there was no clear idea. It was this grand vision, but like actually figuring out a lot of the implementation details. So one question that I I guess I often maybe struggle with. right. The Chinese Special Economic Zones were very successful, but nobody else has really copied them. So like India in 2005 passed legislation that was supposedly modeled on the Chinese Special Economic Zones, but then like failed. So why has nobody actually like really understood the lessons from the Chinese Special Economic Zones and why they were successful?
1: I'm afraid that the lesson is that if you are a government to try to do the same thing, you can't. <laughs> if you're determined that you want to do this, you're already at the stage where where the benefits are there and the the problems that they had in China that they had to overcome the bottleneck that they managed to get through is not the bottleneck that you have. And if you haven't figured out how to benefit your economy opening up, you got other bottlenecks that you have to deal with instead. And I can't tell you exactly what those are without knowing. Right. So that's like the kind of pessimistic take on this because it was such a bottom up process. It's almost like the same, like when we're talking about, like, well. We can see that firms on the local level when they are guided by profit and loss, and therefore they create this you know, benefit for us all. Okay, great. So now we understand that. So how do I create that from the top? No, 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 you don't understand, you know. So it's a little bit like that with China, that it's like they had obstacles that had to do with a government, the party, ruling party that did not want openness and they were afraid of that and the way that somebody squeezed it in was to create this little small pockets like who would have thought if you are india and you're saying we want to have great exports and whatever we're seeing as the result like it's not only that you're starting in the wrong end you're seeing it you're looking at the result and you're you're thinking oh that's where i'm going to start like if you're sitting there waiting to be convinced by a process like the Chinese were convinced by seeing this process and understanding that I can benefit from this now, you already have the story in your head, right? It really it's just like, you know, like if you have a domestic tiger, it's going to be fine until the day when you realize it, so you can push you around and then it's going to eat you, right? So like, uh, <laughs> it's a little weird an- analogy, but I get that. No, but so it's the question of whether China is a unique story. Could it happen elsewhere? Only at in places where they're not asking for it. Maybe it could happen in Cuba. Maybe it could happen in North Korea. Something like that. Possible. you got such much smaller economies, though, so it's a little bit harder to see how the geographical diversification that you could have, you know, it could play out in the same, similar way. I would be very doubtful that it could happen in Russia. Russia has pursued their top-down version of zones themselves. So... It's hard to draw the lesson, right? Like you draw the lesson in saying, hey, zones work from the bottom up in various ways. The way that they were so beneficial in China, overcoming this huge resistance. If that's going to be the story, you're going to have to find a place for the resistance. And those are not the people who are going to invite you for a meeting to talk about charter cities.
0: So let me, I guess, push back on you a little bit. There's obviously some unique things about China. They have a long history of statehood. So they, the state was actually relatively strong in certain senses and, and was effective at, at governance. Part of the problem with the, kind of the Mao communist era is because they pursued the wrong governance, not because they were ineffective per se. The second, China had, I guess, right, like forcibly prevented urbanization from happening. So there was a very large pent up demand for urbanization because Mao's strategy was explicitly to prevent urbanization, to keep the kind of system decentralized because he was terrified of a Russian invasion. And those are somewhat unique, but I think there are some similarities to other countries that can be drawn from the Chinese Special Economic Zones in terms of the devolution of authority to the local government, in terms of the creation of very large zones. And I don't know, at least some of the conversations that we have been having suggest that there is an openness and there is an appetite. And what I see, the mistakes that other countries are making, is that like I think the Chinese zone model works in many countries that are urbanizing quite rapidly. So that model basically being the decentralization of authority to a a city government, very large area, and a lot of flexibility within that city government, and hopefully pretty heavy private sector involvement because the private sector tends to make better decisions. And you always need that degree of, I don't know, buy-in from both the government as well as the kind of investors in the private sector. And so the government is never really going to be able to lead but at the same time, my, at least based on sort of our experiences, some of the conversations we're having. If you go and if you present a model and if it is credible, then you can get a degree of government buy-in for something resembling the kind of Chinese SEZ program. And my guess, I mean, it's a guess, it's a, it's a bed of the Charter Cities Institute is that if we can do that, we can be reasonably successful in terms of economic growth and alleviating poverty.
1: Yes, absolutely. Oh, wonderful words. And let me suggest to you this way of thinking about it. Like this is the framework that I have in my mind. There are three levels of benefits that zones can have. And you were asking for like, what's the best one? And I would say, oh, I have only one example. I don't know if you can replicate that, but we already covered kind of what I would say the lowest bar, which is, let's say, lower is the middle and, and the high one. The highest one is like China overcoming what seemed to be impossible thing to, like, liberalize an economy. The lower one, I would say, is overcoming the knowledge and incentive problem. And that's exactly what you're getting at here. And China is a great example of that, too. They needed to perform in that space for the whole project to work. I'm just saying that what they also did, that they did first broke through this really, really thick ice allowing that process to start at all but once they were there yes they had a lot of other things going for it because not only did the political decentralization fiscal and political decentralization allow for that dynamism to happen but it also created zones that comply so to speak with to a large extent with the knowledge and the incentive problem so it's kind of like when you see zones you can ask that first level question do they solve the knowledge incentive problem? And only then can you ask the harder questions. Well, are they solving, have they actually solved other problems? So I definitely think, I mean, when you're like out and kind of describing what you can learn from the Chinese case, you can definitely easy, I mean, you know how to do that. Like you can definitely say, in what way is this solving the knowledge problem much better than other models that you might be considering? How is it solving the incentive problem? The size of the zones, definitely a factor there. And then if you're looking at a case, especially economic zones, I would say that there's the middle and a level of difficulty here, which is, is it beneficial in the political economy context? And that there, that is the asking of the question of what would have happened if you didn't have the zones? So the zones can be beneficial compared to say, before you started the zones, but then the question is, well, what would you have done instead? If otherwise you would have liberalized, I would say they're actually not beneficial in the kind of political narrative that you might have. So that's kind of, so I'm I'm like presenting kind of three levels, if that makes sense. Like one is knowledge, the lowest one is knowledge and incentive problem. The second one is the political context problem. What would you have done otherwise? And the third one was it like, is more like, are you at your best? Are the zones like solving a huge problem? Which I think was the case in China.
0: Cool. And let me actually... I guess ask, because the knowledge and incentive problem, I'm like somewhat sympathetic to them, right? I went to George Mason, but I actually think George Mason tends to overstate them a little bit. So how do you think about the knowledge and incentive problem within the kind of zone or charter city itself, right? There will be a city government and they will not have the same access to prices. I mean, it's a little bit like closer to the people than the national government, but at the same time, it also faces the knowledge and incentive problem. And our operating assumption is that like, right? With the kind of right starting conditions, you can mitigate a lot of those problems, right? They will still exist, but they will not be nearly as, I guess, present and not really be a major factor in kind of the decision-making once you mitigate them with the right starting conditions.
1: I talked to a person who has a knowledge problem today. My boss has a knowledge problem. He doesn't know what I'm doing right now. In any organization, you have a knowledge problem. And it's the knowledge and incentive problem are both like, they give you a statement of there's a cost. They don't talk about what the benefit is, but it's a cost that you shouldn't kind of ignore. And often the benefit will be the same or better if you can solve the knowledge and the incentive problem, right? So that's why we want the private development rather than government doing it. Usually that's a, a better solution. So I think of Charter City as a conglomerate, a big firm, the incentive problem has to be addressed. It can't be that you're somehow better off by bribing people or something like that. And if it works such that you can only be successful leading this charter city, if you actually produce wealth in the charter city, you've got to have incentive to do things right. And then, I mean, the harder question as you ask it, the knowledge problem. Can you do industrial policy? Can you do, you know, can you plan anything? Yeah, a company plans things. If you wanna make things optimize welfare in this space, you have the incentive to delegate when it's appropriate. And that's what you do usually in the company, right? You create different sections of a company doing things that should be done in a decentralized way for a specific process. But some decisions are made from the top and that's gonna be the same here. I don't know if you would come across issues where the company question would not apply to charter city question maybe i have a too simple of a model but that's the way i'm thinking about it
0: no i think that's right i mean mm-hmm. our kind of model is where the real estate developer has a heavy involvement with the city government and so sort of the cosine point being that there always are these kind of i don't know transaction costs that agglomerate that conglomerates or companies or firms or whatever can help overcome but they continue to exist and Like depending on, I mean, I don't know, some Austrians will probably bristle at this, some George Mason people, but you can probably fit at least some of Hayek's argument within the general Kosian framework of understanding, right? Like how information moves within organizations. But let's, I guess, then actually take a a little bit of a step back. So you finished your PhD at George Mason, I don't know, what, like five, six years ago. We're getting old.
1: Five years ago. Five years ago.
0: (laughs) And then you published your book, what, three years ago or so, but you've been spending most of the time working in finance in Chicago. So you kind of have this like sort of insider and outsider view of how the charter city space has evolved. So I want to get, I guess, your perspective, like how does it feel like now versus several years ago? What do you think the changes are? Like what has been kind of the experience of like kind of watching this space grow from the outside?
1: Well, right now it's a very interesting period with COVID and how that's changing the world for sure. (laughs) I'm actually honestly impressed to see that there are great initiatives there that I don't know if we were unaware and they disappeared but I really feel like it's our generation that got a lot of things going and of course we hope this is just a really, really small seed that's going to really multiply but I mean everything that you're seeing going on right now you basically had I mean we did have the attempt that was at Honduras of Paul Romer, when we were still in school. And of course there are always government initiatives that you hear about that kind of talk to themselves as, oh, we're a smart city plus some version of something else. But yeah, I think that a lot of things have happened. I just, I mean, of course I'm connected with lots of you and yeah, I think that the ideas start being spread out there. I think that's great. I think that it's really important for us to make sure that people are studying today hear about these ideas and therefore decide to study. And if they're doing a PhD, do your PhD on, on, in this field so that, you know, that's how you get, because that's when you really get a chance. I mean, PhD, like that was just a long vacation where you can think about something really focused for a while, right? So like, when else are you going to have that time? You know, people get out of school if they haven't thought about something this conceptual and deep, you tend to go into more kind of mundane tracks in my world having met a lot of people finance of course so that's kind of where i'm thinking like i'm optimistic but i'm thinking a lot of the the energy is going to come from people who are way younger than we are we're already old now and who are going to get the ideas when they're still like studying and have time to like read and think hard about because it's so many like conceptual ideas embedded in this that you'd hope when you want your core of people that you're gonna work with, I mean, you can hire other people who can just do their work, but when you want your core, you want them to understand and really pursue the ideas for what they are you know, and the vision is.
0: This is one of the things that we've been trying to balance and juggle. Actually, if people come up to me and ask like how they want to get involved, I will not tell i think anybody to go get a phd (laughs) i think right like if you just think about it okay a phd will take about five years in five years the space is going to be vastly vastly different and so if you really want to get involved there's a lot that can be done now that will probably increase lifetime earnings that will my opinion at least probably be more entertaining than my phd was so one of the things that i think we're kind of i guess i wouldn't say struggling with but trying to juggle and balance Is this idea of right, like, how do you effectively communicate these deep conceptual ideas to people while also having this very practical understanding of like what needs to be done and what actions to be taken. So in one sense, I think we're trying to kind of build on this school of thought that's still relatively new, that's still relatively nascent to get this like very large coherent understanding but on the other hand, we're also trying to really have a very yeah, practical focus, engaging these projects on the ground, because like, ultimately this is kind of an action-oriented space, right? We do need academics, but I'm passionate about this in particular because I think it has this real-world application. So I guess balancing these two things I've, I've seen as important, and I'm not sure we're getting that balance exactly right, but I think we're doing okay at it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you basically, I feel like you're saying that if someone is doing the PhD, Too late already. I agree. Like, I mean, it's a matter of like before you either do that or get into whatever you're trying to run to in your career. So that's more like since everybody goes to college in this country, there'll be, you know, college students or people thinking about college, even, you know, yeah, just like getting people to think about the ideas when they have the opportunity and then getting excited or being in your space. And then you'll know better in terms of like how people find you easily. I think that media like this podcasts great very good initiative blogs but people have so much to read already right to some extent blogs are good yeah
0: yeah one of the things that i think we've struggled a little bit with is kind of the distribution network we're currently hiring a head of communications who we hope can help i guess spread this message more effectively and we see it as kind of a multiple tier process in terms of right one engaging the young people creating this strong talent pool available for charter cities which is important in several dimensions, just because you, one, you want to like get general interest in the topic, and then two, also as we're thinking about kind of charter city administration, there needs to be talented administrators for charter cities, and if you're building a charter city in Nigeria, for example, you don't want to hire people from the Nigerian government because that's the system that's not working super effectively now, and so you don't want them to bring those bad kind of norms. You want to create this pocket of effectiveness, which requires new training mechanisms, new cultural mechanisms to ensure that you have this really effective governing structure and then in addition, what we also want to do is we see Charter Cities as an idea that really fits in with a lot of topics that people are discussing right now. So from global warming, right, like urban areas tend to be less carbon intensive than rural areas. And if you design the urban areas correctly, they're even less carbon intensive than otherwise, to things like migration, to things like Chinese and American engagement on the world stage. And so Charter Cities really I don't know, address a lot of I guess, pressing topics today. And the other thing in addition to trying to develop a body of knowledge that can appeal to the next generation, we're also trying to engage kind of the current generation of leaders in these different areas to say, hey, you care about X topic, Charter Cities can help you address X topic. So that's like talk about what that engagement might look like and figure out how we might collaborate to like help address X topic with Charter Cities being part of that discussion.
1: Yeah, I mean, I experienced that when I start talking about Special economic zones, which is way less cool than what you're doing. People who don't know anything about it, you can explain it right in 30 seconds and they can ask the best questions because it's exciting. You get the concept. It's like, of course, you want a private city like that. It's in a better way. Of course, we want democracy to work better. Of course, I want all that. Um, it's almost like from whatever part of like what you're pursuing, you can be a part of it. And I can't imagine that you would lack in opportunities except COVID, of course, but to participate in any event in any of the topics that you just said, right?
0: You'd be surprised.
1: (laughs) Really? I would imagine that if you say like, oh, well, you want somebody, maybe one session in your conference or your seminar thing that you're putting up here to talk about a different way to think about it and a different solution. It might be interesting, you know. Have you heard of a cities?
0: What we've kind of noticed is my operating assumption was similar to that when I started the Charter Seas Institute that, right, we'll have our foot in all of these different pies. And because Mm -hmm. this is an interesting topic, we'll get engagement from them. And what we've kind of realized is that people don't really know how to, I don't know, place us. So because we're not fully enmeshed in any single system, we've kind of been ignored by a lot of these. That is changing over the last kind of few months. It's been changing. And now we're adding, right, we have a Somebody doing partnerships, so we're now being a little bit more, I guess, aggressive in terms of our engagement with some of these other groups, and I expect it to continue to change. But it's a, I guess, ongoing conversation, and one that I was a little bit surprised in terms of, right, like coming and forward with that proposal. And part of it was probably just because we were a young organization. People like are in some sort of social networks are a little bit less, I don't know, trusting of younger organizations because, like, I don't know, I'm. I was a little bit unpolished. I'm still a little bit unpolished. And so there's a little bit of like, hey, you're like young to be running an organization or like, what is this actually? So we're getting there. We're getting that broader engagement, but it's not quite there yet in terms of, I think, all of the spaces that charter cities could be a part of the discussion with.
1: And part of it must be just to get the concept in people's ears. Yeah. For you to just go on all kinds of podcasts and just talk about it, like something that not going to Track somebody directly, sell something, but it's like more and more people just hear the words and heard about it. And then, you know, they start Googling and it's like, oh, what's the organization that does this anyway?
0: Yeah, and so that's what we're beginning to see that like the the kind of repeated discussion, the repeated iteration has people paying more attention and becoming more willing to engage us. And uh, I think we're basically in a charter cities moment right now. So over the next, I don't know, a few years that we will really see that engagement skyrocket. I won't really see that level of interest skyrocket just because it is a topic that really affects a lot of these global issues that we're facing today.
1: It's interesting, you know, me coming from the special economic zone world, it's, I certainly believe that there's going to be a case for more special jurisdictions in the world. I don't see like charter cities as like out-competing special economic zones because they're so different. And I rather think that this is an opportunity to uh, reform some of the old inefficient special economic zones models as well if the charter city become like a a concept that people can learn from
0: cool yeah i think so as well i mean there's there's a lot of space for different models and i think there are a lot of successful special economic zones out there and charter cities can are somewhat different right most special economic zones don't have residential areas they tend to be a little bit more industry specific and so the charter cities and special economic zones can complement one another and like our approach is largely incremental Right, it might be difficult to verge too far to get a full charter city initially, but to right, like show that taking steps towards a charter city model leads to these better outcomes can help kind of build support build momentum and change the conversation.
1: I don't know how much effect it's gonna have, but like we're living in a pandemic now. Pandemics has to last a few years, and people are really revising where they wanna live, what their lifestyle is, I suspect you're going to have a lot of just mobility, not, I mean, even just within countries like people want to live more in the suburbs and not in the cities or whatever they want to do, find more different ways of governance. You don't need to be so close to your office anymore. More people are going to work from home. I don't know. I'm thinking it creates also a moment of mobility that opens opportunities for new jurisdictions.
0: So we've definitely seen an increase in kind of conversation. And we've also seen a lot more projects start reaching out to us. I'm a little bit, I guess, skeptical of that point with this increased mobility. I think it will lead to a short term increase. Like, there's definitely a lot more conversation about like intentional communities, about sort of co living spaces, moving to more rural areas. I suspect this will not be sustained basically for two reasons. One, if you look historically, right, like cities have been through a lot of, I don't know, pandemics, diseases, whatever, and people still like cities. And then, second, I think there's a demographic piece to this right millennials are a much larger percentage of the population than gen x or gen z millennials are right now kind of reaching i don't know mid-20s to mid-30s even i think like late 30s and because millennials are such a much larger percentage of the population right as people enter kind of their later stages in lives they're a little bit more likely to settle down they're a little bit less risk averse they're less likely to travel and so we're going to see right millennials, as they start families, as they move to the suburbs, as they do things like this, that's going to be a different dynamic. And Gen Z, even if Gen Z, a higher percentage of their population wants to live in this kind of remote work lifestyle, because the absolute numbers of Gen Z is less than millennials, right? It will, even if like the relative number increases of Gen Z is doing that the absolute number might decrease. And so we, I, I suspect that this, I don't know, Intentional community trend will be a little bit short-lived and people won't be as, uh, I don't know, concerned thinking about it in five years as they are today.
1: Could it be that people move out from the cities because they don't want to be around all this virus and then, then they start coming back and when they want to come back, they're like, hmm, do we need to move to the same city or are we going to look for other new cities?
0: Oh, uh, that's possible. Yeah. I think
1: oh, probably, but no, something.
0: Hard to know. Are you thinking about that?
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: Chicago is not as attractive as it used to be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) we are dull right now.
0: (laughs) Cool. Well, I think that's about our show. So thanks for coming on today, Lada.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Great to talk to you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Letter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities podcast.